Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. Eye of the Cricket by James Salis, read by Ray Shell. We're in New Orleans in 1997. Lou Griffin, writer, teacher and detective, has been to hospital to visit a man run over by a garbage truck. The man had a copy of Lou's novel, The Old Man, in his pocket, inscribed by the author to David. David is Lou's son, who had left home and disappeared some years before. I remember a December, unseasonably warm, it might have been June, sometime in the late 60s, Cataclysms everywhere, social, racial, personal. The whole period's kind of a blur, not a good time for me, as they say. I've been thrown out of yet another apartment, spent the night in a covered bus stop having intermittent elliptical conversations, and at eight, when it opened, was standing outside the K&B at St. Charles and Napoleon, waiting to buy a pint of bourbon. Someone else was there before me, a neatly dressed businessman typing his Lincoln with the windows up and radio on. He asked for two pint bottles of vodka, and at the register, for just a moment, our eyes met in a silent kinship, two men buying liquor at eight in the morning. There was a period back then when I lived for over a year on something like $400, Rent for a small apartment, a kitchenette in one room, maybe even a tiny bedroom, was $75. i pay a month's rent and move in. Wouldn't be able to make the second month, but they wouldn't throw me out till the third. Then I'd move on. At first, each new place was a step down the social scale. Later on, they seemed more like steps down the evolutionary scale. I'll never forget the last one. I rang the front bell. And up from the stairwell of the basement where she lived rose a stork-like woman, flanked by three dogs whose skin had peeled away in patches, leaving narrow dark septums around white flesh. The apartment's floor was warped. Linoleum in spots had fused with the floor's wood. Missing boards held in place windows, themselves missing panes beyond which hung screens orange with rust, screens so brittle that pieces broke away when I touched them. Pipes on the wall drummed furiously whenever anyone flushed the toilet or ran water, but it was all I could afford, so I took it. I paid, moved in my two paper bags stuffed with clothes and books, drank a celebratory six-pack, and fell asleep. About three that morning, I woke to a languid, warm breeze through which stars shone brightly and a light rain fell and went out. And that was it. I never went back there. The next time I woke, it was in a hospital with this guy's face six inches from my own saying, Hey, bud, you in there? <laughs> Don thought I never knew how bad it got, but I did. Drank as always, no. We've just turned ourselves into experts at not noticing. All those years, almost every night I'd wake at two or three in the morning, heart pounding to the call of sirens across the city. Naked and sick, I would stand at the window, 
promising myself the whole thing wasn't going to start up again, thinking I won't, knowing I would. Well, I got a bad liver and a broken heart. Yeah, I drunk me a river since you told me apart. I don't have a drinking problem Except when I can't get a drink I wish you'd known that we were quite a pair I have the red beans and rice, Richard Garces said Please tell me they're not left over from Monday Monday was traditionally wash day in old New Orleans. Fix ahead pots of red beans and rice simmering on the stove. Many restaurants carry on the tradition. It's a city that embraces tradition. Tuesday at the latest, Tammy said. One hygiene-clad hip went high as she rested hand and older pad on it. No reason you notice, but we do move a little slow around here. <laughs> They barely moved at all. Moochies reminded me of those time capsules they used to bury back in the 50s, full of artifacts, a newspaper, recordings of popular songs, comic books, Kool-Aid packets, a nylon scarf, souvenir ashtrays, formica, fake wood paneling, and bright plastic everywhere. Hank Williams, Patsy Cline, and Jimmy Reed on the jukebox. We did our best, Richard, Don Walsh, and myself, to get together like this at least once a week, have dinner, talk things over. Sometimes it would get put off week after week. Other times it might happen every day or two. Over five or six years, I guess that I've reached out. And to drink, Tammy said, coffee. Don ordered rigatoni, salad with Italian, and a beer, any kind. I looked at him. He shrugged. I asked guiltily for a large Caesar. Blood work on my two most recent hospitalizations over a year ago had shown high cholesterol, but I tried not to think about it. Iced tea now, coffee after. Tammy, how's Byron? Richard said. He's fine. Said to tell you hello in his last letter, now that I think about it. Still in Atlanta? Oh, yeah. Couldn't haul him out of there with a team of Clydesdales. At college in the 60s, both of them impossibly young, Richard, as they used to say, had brought Byron out, or they'd brought one another out. Then they'd openly lived together for a number of years, something people throw parties and send out invitations for nowadays. But back then... That was sort of your own personal Pearl Harbor. It was underground nuclear testing in your backyard. Commie infiltration at the DAR. Dry rot in the moral fabric. Steal with Chip? You bet. <laughs> they finally bit the bullet. Got married last year. And your folks? She shrugged. Maybe with time, Richard said. Tammy's glance said, no way. There wasn't that much time. She dropped our order off at the kitchen. So it wasn't David after all, Garces said, returning to the conversation Tamit had interrupted when she came to our table. No, though it could have been. Assuming David is still alive, Walsh said. I nodded. 
of course. But in some very odd, some particular way, it, it felt as though it were David when I first got the call. I tried to explain what was going on within me as I walked into that room. Warm fronts and cold fronts colliding, high-pressure areas, patches of dazzling sunlight, scatters of raindrops the size of cities. Tammy brought our drinks. No way to explain the connection, Richard said. What was he doing with David's book? No way to know there was a connection. He'd had that book a long time. Someone had. I take it there wasn't any idea on him. I sent a lab tech out for prints, Walsh said. Lots of mental hospitals routinely fingerprint their admissions. He's been on the streets long and it looked like he has. Then chances are good he's in the system somewhere. A match is going to roll up. I was at the hospital all night, I said. About noon, he stabilized and got shipped upstairs to one of the ICUs. He since regained consciousness, but he was anoxic during the arrest. No way to know how long, really, or how much damage was done. This may be just another dead end, Lou. Maybe. I speak to you, I think you understand and know you made your son Joseph Dangerous man, boy, he's gone to town, bought himself a gun. This could happen to every mother's son. David had disappeared years ago during a summer in Europe. In effect, he fell off the edge of the world. He'd written his mother almost every week, then the letters stopped. Two months passed. Her own letters to him, sent post-restante to a post office in Paris, were never returned. I tried to trace him, got Vicky and her husband in Paris to run things down at that end, talked to the chairman of his department and to David's sole friend at Columbia, had an old friend of my own, a detective in New York, follow up there. Dooley was able to place David on a non-stop flight, Paris to New York, then to a cab that dropped him downtown, maybe Grand Central or Port Authority. There, the trail went cold. Dead ends. It was all dead ends. I had put the mini cassette with its two 20-second segments of blank tape where someone had called, stayed on the line and said nothing. Whenever I heard them, trapdoors fell open beneath me, away in my desk. They're pulling a tube tonight, I said as Tammy brought our food. If he's able to remember, able to talk at all, I'll find out what the connection is with David. Assuming there is one. Right. Get you anything else? Tammy asked. We told her no. She told us to enjoy. You want me to come along, Lou? Walsh said. No need. I've spoken with the doctors. They say it's okay. I'll be home. They give you any problem, you call me. Something else. I told him about Sean Delaney and asked if either had any suggestions. Richard shook his head. Lou, you ever gonna learn to say no? <laughs> no. I get it on the network tonight, if you write it all down for me. I already had and handed it across. Richard was part of an underground information system, social and mental health workers who'd more or less stumbled onto this as an effective shortcut. 
He used it before to help me find Laverne's daughter. And tomorrow morning, I'll talk to some of the people on the streets, slide them into it, kids especially. Thanks, Richard. It's not a... Speaking of which, he said, turning to dawn, the streets and kids, not nada. How's Danny doing? Walsh shrugged. No job yet? Jobs were rain, he'd be cactus. He did work half a day at a place on a buddy in a canal, one of those old diners that looked like a trailer. The manager, kid about ten years younger than him, started to show him how he was doing something wrong, and Danny just walked out, showed up at the house stealing his apron. I figured things weren't going too well when he missed our lunch last week. Days go by when I hardly see him at all. Others, a block and tackle couldn't get him out of the house. What can you do? Not much, Don. Tough as it is. Yeah. This could happen to everyone's son. One night last year, Walsh had got a call from the Carl Gables, Florida Police Department. An officer there said they had his son in custody. The charge this time, yes, they'd had him at the station before, was burglary. 28 years old, Danny was still living with his mother, unemployed, the officer said. And recently, while she was away at work and he off somewhere, his mother's house had been cleaned out. An investigating officer tracking stolen goods came across her TV in a pawn shop and following up on it, days later, trailed Danny back to the self-storage facility where he cached his mother's property. He pawned a few things, giving some of it away, but mostly it was just sitting there, stacked up neat as a pin. The boy's mother now claimed that she might have kind of given him permission or at least somehow given him the impression that it would be perfectly okay to haul off the furniture, appliances, and even the handles off the kitchen cabinets. So unless she decided to proceed beyond a court-ordered commitment from observation, there wasn't a lot they were going to be able to do till the next time. But his, Walsh's name, had come up during the investigation, and now Sergeant Montez was calling as a professional courtesy, officer to officer, because he thought Walsh might want to know what was going on, maybe get involved. The upshot being that when Danny got out from under the commitment, he decided he'd be better off living with his father. Well, not actually living with him, he'd just be in the same city, you know. So he came to stay with Don while he looked for work in a place of his own and never left. Big brother-like, Richard had taken him under wing, showing him the city, not that he seemed much interested, introducing him to a few people in which he seemed even less interested, meeting him for occasional lunches and coffee. Tell him to give me a call, Richard said. I will. Anyone up for dessert? Tammy asked. Sam's put together a sweet potato and pecan pie that he plans on advertising as a threat to intelligent life on the planet. Most cities, they leave it up to traffic, poverty, automatic weapons, fire, things like that. Here, they try to feed you to death. We decline. 
Tammy put the check down. I reached, but Don already had it. My turn. I go out walking after midnight out in the moonlight just like we used to do. I'm always walking after midnight searching for you. Outside, everything about the night was quietly transformed. Humidity softened the edge of buildings. Glistening wet, the streets looked clean and new. Even the headlights of oncoming cars were wrapped in shells of soft white. We walked together a block or two to Don's car, the same ancient regal he'd had for years. Richard continued up Britannia. Drop you, Lou? Thanks, but I'll walk. Great night. He looked around. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it is. Let me know how things turn out at the hospital. Don, he'd gotten in. I leaned down to be at a level. You going to be all right? Sure, sure I will. We always are, aren't we? You and me. <laughs> it's been a long siege, my friend. Yeah, just sometimes I get tired of looking at the goddamn white of their eyes. Know what I mean? I nodded and shut the door for him. He looked through the window at me a moment, then rolled it down and stuck out his hand. I took it, and we shook. It seemed an odd thing to do with so old and close a friend. That I started by dames, it ain't like asbestos. It don't do nothing but rest us assured. And substantiate the rumors that you've heard. His eyes went from the doctor's face to mine, back and forth. They were wholly without emotion or recognition, without presence, lifeless and flat as lentils. And otherwise, he made no visible effort to move. His arms lay outside him on the bed. His feet had thick, horny undersides as though sandal soles had been grafted on. The toes turned in. He was probably older than he looked. You can talk now, sir, though you're going to have an awfully sore throat for a while. Can you tell me who you are? The doctor's name was Bailey. He bent to hang an oxygen cannula over the man's ears and adjust it. Can you tell me what day it is, sir? Do you know where you are? Just those eyes arcing back and forth, that blankness. You're going to be all right. You've had an accident. You're in the intensive care unit at University Hospital. You came in last night, Tuesday, so this is Wednesday. He paused. Now, can you tell me who you are? He waited a moment. Still nothing. He turned away. I don't know. Looks like we're definitely going to need a neuroconsult. He dropped the endotracheal tube with its cluster of tape into a wastebasket beside the bed, went to the sink and squirted betadine from a dispenser mounted on the wall, started washing his hands. You want to page the medicine intern for me? I'm getting no breath sounds on the right. A nurse called from one of the beds across the room. 
Bailey stepped from behind the partitioning curtain. I'm already on a unit, Bailey said. Excuse me, Mr. Griffin. He went across to the bed and after listening a moment with his stethoscope, asked for something. The nurse passed him a syringe. He tapped at the man's ribs a time or two, then holding the syringe like a dart, jabbed it into his chest. Pressure's going down, O2 sats up to 84. A second nurse came over carrying a bundle, pushing a bedside table. She set the bundle down, tore open the tape sealing it, and unfolded greenish-gray material from around a stainless steel tray, coils of rubber tubing, surgical instruments, and clear sterile packages. With one of those instruments, Bailey punctured the chest again, just below the syringe. With another that looked like a combination between cooking forceps and needle-nose pliers, he threaded a rubber tube into the chest, stitched it in place, and attached a plastic bottle. Okay, looks good. Let's get a stat chest to confirm. Good catch, Nancy. ABG, when you're ready? The nurse was listening to the man's chest. She glanced up and nodded, moved her stethoscope to the other side. The second nurse was tossing instruments into the tray, disposables into the trash. Bailey came back across the floor. I nodded toward the man on the bed between us. He hadn't taken his eyes off Bailey the whole time. Now the eyes swung to me. Still, empty, depthless, like shallow water. His face, though deeply lined with hard planes and full features, somehow just as emotionless, just as blank. The word wiped came to me. Then a flurry of synonyms, erased, undone, deleted, obliterated, expunged, dissolved, consumed. Bailey again shook his head. It's always hard to say, especially at first with cases like this. The trauma itself can temporarily short-circuit everyday connections, and sometimes people come up with really weird responses to emergency drugs. He was beaten on the head. Almost certainly there's been some degree of anoxia. We don't even have any way of knowing what kind of shape he was in before all this. Again, he began scrubbing his hands at the sink. We'll watch him. I'll have Nero in for a look. Not much else I can tell you right now. Could be a whole different ball game by morning. He'd hung his lab coat on the end of the bed, and as he reached for it, the man on the bed said, You got my book. We both turned. What? Bailey said. My book. You got it. He was carrying a book when he came in, I said. They found it in his clothes downstairs. Who are you, sir? What's your name? You got my book. We have to know who you are, sir. You got my book, he said, then politely added, sir. I got the book from the inside pocket of my coat and handed it to him. He took it. The first time he'd moved, he looked at the front cover, turned it over, opened it and looked inside. Then he looked at me and nodded my book and that was it he closed his eyes and fell asleep i moved out to the waiting room where mostly alone i passed the night 
watching the dreary banter of talk show hosts and guest celebrities and a couple of movies whose plots, characters, and climatic car chases were indistinguishable. There might be no connection at all between David and this patient, of course. He could simply have found the book somewhere, come across it in the curbside trash, a basement, some abandoned room or building. I wasn't sure I wanted to think too closely about where or how he might have found it. For a long time now, years, when I thought of my son at all, I had assumed he was dead. But this man might have found the book at a shelter of some kind, maybe in New York. It could have made its way there, or even been left there by David himself. Or at a church, the kind in which people take refuge, the kind that hands out blankets and feeds the destitute, keeps a cachet of Bibles and books and old clothes on hand for them. Last night in ER, no, it was night before last now, Craig Parker has suggested that the patient's clothes, apparent cast-offs but recently clean, might have come from one of the churches or missions. Around 12, the guy polishing the floor shut off his machine, got a thermos of coffee from his cart, and started telling me about the house he and his girlfriend were buying up on Valence. Only problem was, it was next door to a cemetery, and he wanted to know if that would bother me. I told him I loved cemeteries. Twenty-year-old sitcoms for an hour from then on. Around five, a nurse on break sat beside me and, smoking three cigarettes in fifteen minutes, told me the story of her life. Sadly, it wasn't much of a story or a life, and she knew it. I know I'm walking watched dawn take over the window. It came to me that I had utterly missed my Wednesday classes, not only missed them, but not even given them a thought. It was the first time in years anything like that had happened since I'd gone looking for Alouette. At seven, a bleary-eyed, much-bespattered Bailey got off the elevator. He came up to me and stood staring out at the light. Been here all night? Yeah. Hope you got some sleep at least. I shook my head. Must be something in the air. Well, let's go see what the morning's brought, shall we? I followed him into the unit. Nurses were changing shift, walking from bed to bed as they gave report. The ones going off looked used up. The ones coming on didn't look a hell of a lot better. Sunlight streamed in at the windows, glared on every surface. Workers pushed carts of linens and supplies through double doors. The phone buzzed and went on buzzing. Behind a half-curtain, he sat almost upright in bed. A plastic wash basin and soap dish were on the tray table before him. He was nude. A towel covered his lap. Cleanliness. Next to, he said... Any moment now, a marshalling strength. His eyes went from Bailey to me and back. 
He smiled, and one hand lifted in a sketchy, exhausted wave. Good morning. Early starting the day, huh? I didn't expect you this soon. He looked closely at Bailey. You wanted to know my name. Bailey nodded. Lewis Griffin, he said. He held up his ragged copy of the old man. My book. One of them, anyway. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.